0: Well, uh, my marriage began with a letter. Let's see if we have a picture here. That's a few years ago. <laughs> uh, actually, and my wife gave me a job interview. That's how we met. But uh, it, was, it was a quick interaction, and there was absolutely no follow-up, and I didn't get the job, um, <laughs> which is actually good because it helped me get used to rejection early in the relationship. Uh, I think she's here somewhere. I had to be careful what I'm saying. (laughs) But a couple of years later, I pulled myself off the ground and tried again. Uh, Not for the job, you know, for Ann. Um, And so here's another another picture of us. Uh, Now, we were totally disconnected at the time, living in different states, but I got this idea. She did mission work at the time in the Soviet Union. Uh, I didn't know anything about mission work, so I bought a book and read it, or at least the introduction. (laughs) <laughs> but I thought, you know, this is kind of a waste of time, me reading this book all by myself. Then I got a better idea, a letter. Uh, Dear Anne, hey, I found this new book on missions. I thought you might find it interesting. Uh, maybe you'd like to read it together, right? And the rest is history. <clears throat> the moral of that story is that if you want to get a certain someone into your inbox, you've got to get yourself into the outbox, right? And more importantly, there's a principle here for the followers of Jesus. If we want our neighbors to join Jesus in his mission to reconcile all people, if we want to get people into his inbox, we've got to get ourselves into his outbox. Here's the way the Apostle Paul puts it in a letter that he sent to the people in Rome. But how are they to call on one in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in one whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone to proclaim Him? And how are they to proclaim Him unless they are sent? Today, we're beginning a new sermon series called Sent to Rome, Man of Reconciliation. Remember, when we say reconciliation, we mean to overcome what disconnects us. We'll be looking at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote and sent to Rome. But as we read the letter, I want us to think about the people, uh, the people who read the letter. Jesus, of course, is the man of reconciliation. And because he is, they, the people who read the letter, gather in houses of reconciliation. And the bigger story here is that God isn't just sending a letter to Rome, he's sending people to Rome. Today I just want to introduce you uh, to some of these people to help you understand a little bit more about their lives, who they were, and what reconciliation might have looked like for them. Uh, My hope is that this will help us better understand what it means to be people who are sent, to get ourselves into His outbox as agents of reconciliation. So the people, who are they? Well, we meet them as the letter begins and as it ends. So let's take out our Bibles. You can grab the black book in front of you there and uh, turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. You'll find this on page 913 of the Pew Bible. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's Word aloud together. We'll read Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. The gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. David Brooks, in a recent interview, said something that really caught my attention. Because it's something that I've been trying to say uh, for a long time, and he said it better. He said, my my basic theory of social change is that culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. Culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. Apparently Mr. Brooks had a personal crisis in his life about five years ago. His life fell apart. He lost his marriage, lost his friends, lived alone. He said, I was using workaholism as therapy for an emotional and spiritual problem. He said, I never met anybody whose life didn't fall apart if they thought they were leading a bad and meaningless life, and his life fell apart. So he began looking for a small group of people with a better way to live. Rumor has it he founded in a Presbyterian church in New York City, but in a new book called The Second Mountain, he argues that we should all find one and that the future of our culture depends upon it. And the problem is disconnection. He writes the foundational layer of American society, the network of relationships and commitments and trust that the state and the market and everything else rep- relies upon, is failing. And the results are as bloody as any war. He argues the casualties of this disconnection show up in unprecedented levels of tribalism, isolation, suicide, addiction, and despair. But here's where we can make a difference. Culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. This is what's happening in first century Rome. And Paul's heard about it. He's never been there and he can't go now, but he's heard about it. The year is AD 57. He's in Greece, Corinth. He's just gathered a large sum of money from Christians in that area and he needs to take it to the poor in Jerusalem. And he can't go to Rome, so he sends a letter. It's carried by a woman named Phoebe a leader in a nearby church. He sends it to people. Who are these people? Well, the answer is right there at the beginning of the letter. In verse 7, we just read it. To all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints. Now, immediately we see there are two ways to look at these people uh, through a theological lens or through a sociological lens. Looking through a theological lens, we see them the way God sees them. Looking through a sociological lens, we see them the way the culture sees them. Paul sees both ways. He starts with a theological lens. You are people God loves. God's beloved in Rome. You are people with a better way to live, called to be saints. This is where he starts. Uh, But... He identifies these people differently at the end of the letter in Romans 16. And it just seems to me that if you're going to understand the letter, you have to know something about the individuals to whom it was first written. So let's turn our Bibles to Romans 16 and look together at verses 3 through 16. By the way, this is on page 925 in the Pew Bible. And I just want to walk through this with you and introduce you to these people. In verse 3, Paul says, Greet Prisca, and Aquila. Now, this is Priscilla and Aquila from Acts 18. They make tents, this husband and wife, the same work that Paul does. Paul met them in Corinth, where he writes from, where they had taken refuge a few years earlier when the emperor Claudius, the Caesar, expelled Jews from Rome in AD 49. A Greek Prisca and Aquila, he says, who work with me in Christ Jesus and who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. Now notice this. As tent makers, they had the economic means to rent a house large enough for gatherings. So this is one of the houses where a circle of believers gathered, a house church. Paul continues, greet my beloved Aponitas, verse 5, who was first convert, uh, the first convert in Asia for Christ. Interesting. Uh, here we have an Asian in Rome, uh, maybe a businessman, possibly from Ephesus. Uh, verse 6, greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. Mary, a common Jewish name. Uh, verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who are in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. Now, Junia is a woman. Notice, just like Phoebe, we have a woman leader in Rome, a female apostle. Very surprising uh, culturally. Verse 8, greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ. My beloved Stachys, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. All Greek names. Uh, Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Uh, literally those of Aristobulus, which is very possibly another house church uh, or his slaves. Aristobulus was an elite, the grandson of Herod the Great. Uh, verse 11, greet my relative Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Uh, literally there, it's those of Narcissus and possibly another house church. Uh, verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, uh, Triphinea and Tryphosa, tri- Greet beloved Persis, who's worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And greet his mother, a mother to me also. Here's an elderly woman. She's important in the church and important in Paul's life, a mother also to me, he says. And and by the way, Rufus may be the son of Simon, the Cyrene, the African who is forced to carry Jesus' cross. Greet asynchronous, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. This is another house church. Hermes, by the way, was one of the most common names for a slave at that time. And Phlegon was a dog's name, probably given to a slave. In fact, most, if not the majority of these people in the whole list were slaves, current slaves, and also freed slaves. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them another house church, uh, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. See, these are the people. This is what you see when you look through a sociological lens. And it's, it's very surprising. This sociology is absolutely countercultural and even subversive in the culture of Rome. Because you've got as many as five or more house churches, 26 named people, leaders and not, women and men, different cultures and ethnicities, Greeks, Jews, Romans, Asians, Africans, young and old, elites and enslaved, rich and poor, talk about disconnection, they've got them all. They've got every reason to be devastated in just the way that David Brooks says, by isolation and tribalism, but they're not. I think it's important to see how improbable this is. I stress this because it's so easy to pull the letter to the Romans out of its context and read it as though it's an abstract treatise on theology or a Wikipedia page on spiritual escapism. We talk about the Romans' road to salvation as though Romans were tracked on getting individual souls into heaven, but it's not. It's about the emergence of a new spiritual and social reality in the lives of people right there under Caesar's nose. This is a letter about Jesus, the man of reconciliation. And it's about these people who live together in houses of reconciliation. It's a beautiful thing. And how does this reconciliation actually happen, we might ask? Well, let's, let's look one more time through the sociological lens. I want to introduce you to four more people this morning. Now, they weren't in Rome, but they could have been. And they were just like the people who were. A scholar at the University of Manchester named Peter Oakes has written a fascinating book called Reading Romans in Pompeii. As you know, Pompeii is about 130 miles south of Rome. And in AD 79, it's about 22 years after our letter, Mount Vesuvius erupts and freezes Pompeii in time. Peter Oakes introduced us to four people who actually lived there who were just like the people in Romans 16. Uh, Let me show you where they lived. This is what's called the insula of the Menander. They all lived in one city block. This is cropped a little bit. It actually goes down uh, a bit further than that. But these were their houses. I'm gonna introduce you to these four people. Iris lived up here in houses two and three in the upper right-hand corner. Primus lived to the left next door in house four, rather large house there that goes all the way down to the bottom of the block. Sabina was next door in house six, little teeny house there. And then one door over Holconius in house number seven, which extends down quite a bit, but not as far as house four. Already you notice very different sizes and can guess very different economic situations. Well, let's imagine they were all part of the same house church. I, w- I want to tell you a little bit about their lives looking through the sociological lens and what Paul's letter to the Romans might have meant to these four people. Let's start with Iris. Iris was a young barmaid, just a girl. There's a bar uh, in, in this house two and three. Look at the upper right-hand corner. The woman who owned the bar also owned Iris. Hyrus was a slave. There's graffiti on the walls, tally marks, maybe a game or maybe someone's bar bill, and words like, uh, quote, successus the, successus the weaver loves the innkeeper's servant girl whose name is Hyris. it's misspelled, but she isn't bothered b- about him. Now, tragically, sexual abuse of slaves was endemic in Rome, In all likelihood, Iris was required to sell sexual favors to customers, devastating violence and abuse in her life, which persists, irrespective of moral principle or faith because she's trapped. Just imagine what Paul's letter might mean to Iris as Phoebe comes through the door and reads it on Sunday to hear the words of... Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8.23, we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And to see in the eyes of her sister Phoebe that women matter to God, that they have power in the church, that there's a new family in which they are honored, and their bodies are their own and will be redeemed, the redemption of our bodies. Now, next door to Iris, we have Primus, the slave. Uh, Primus was a middle-aged man. He lived in the house of Menander, which was massive. Some of you have been to Pompeii, and you've been through this house. Uh, Took up most of the block, and it's absolutely beautiful. Large rooms, an atrium, frescoes, bath suite. Its owner was clearly an elite, uh, but Primus was a slave, uh, one of many, and not very high in a a strict hierarchy. Uh, Peter Oakes, our scholar, imagines him as one of the bath stokers, keeping the bathhouse water hot. It was a menial and dirty job. Uh, It kept him alive, but when old age consumes his economic value, he'll be cast onto the streets. What does he need? justice, desperately. Just imagine Primus' eyes when Phoebe reads her letter, when Primus hears Romans 3.26, that God is justice, and he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. And Romans 8.21, creation itself will be set free from its bondage and obtain freedom. Primus is Thrilled to hear Paul work with the Exodus motif and to learn that this is a God who's outraged by slavery, who frees slaves. No doubt Primus needs forgiveness, but Peter Oakes writes, for most people in the world, the need for justice is probably a bigger perceived issue than the need for forgiveness. For Primus, it is likely that the most striking news of the Christian gospel was that a God existed who brings justice for Primus, punishing his oppressors and improving his position. Next door again, in house six, Sabina, the stone worker. We think of this as more of a closet or a shed than a house, as a wide open door, which was common for craftspeople. Basically it's one room. Stairway uh, next door the crowds out 6A She's got a latrine in the floor. Uh, a ceramic pipe comes down from the ceiling to the floor, emptying the toilet from the upstairs apartment into her room. A few stones and stone uh, tools. Sabina lives here with her husband, and like countless craftsworkers in Rome, she suffered poverty. Her biggest concern would be, how do I get through the day? And where do I find our next meal? But imagine what Sabina hears in the letter that Phoebe reads. Romans 8, 32. He who did not withhold his own son, will he not also give us everything else? And Romans 5, 3. We boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Hupomeno. To hear that there is a God who does not waste our sufferings, who works all things together for good in this life, and who restores to us in the life to come all that is lost. Good news for Sabina. Next door, Sabina's neighbor to the left, Holcanius. Holcanius the cabinet maker, he lives in the house where she and others would worship on Sunday. It's an ample space with room for 10 occupants, two stories. Kitchen, dining room, overlooking a garden, which is below the cut there. We find tools and cabinetry projects, as well as medical instruments, interestingly enough. Uh, earrings, gold, money. Hocanius is neither rich nor poor, but his business is successful enough to, have, uh, to be able to rent a sizable house. On Sunday, if you filled the garden and the back porches upstairs and down, 40 people could gather in this space. As the host, perhaps Hulcanius' biggest concern would be the unity and welfare of this community that meets in his home. Jews eat this, Greeks eat that, right? Some say this, others say that. The disconnections are real, status, profession, culture, ethnicity, economics. So Hulcanius listens closely to Paul's message, and a smile comes to his face as Phoebe reads from the garden... Romans 10, 12, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all. And Romans five ten, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Holconeus has got to be thinking, gee, this is more than a little bit hard. There's a lot of Greek, this is a lot, there's a lot for a Greek man to learn about what it means to be in relationship with a Jew or an African or an Asian. And there's a lot of need here that taxes my generosity. It's hard, but it's exactly what I want because it's beautiful. This is a better way to live, Rome has never seen anything like this till now, but it's exactly what it needs, what the world needs, God's man of reconciliation at work in God's houses of reconciliation. See, the point is, when we read Paul's letter to the Romans in historical context, just that God doesn't just send a letter to Rome, he sends people. People who are sent for others. By the way, that's one of our five values here, sent for others. You see, Paul sent a letter to Rome, but God sent people. The letter was for the saints, but the saints were for the city. Sent. That's what the word apostle means, sent. These are people who put the theological lens ahead of the sociological lens. They don't just see each other the way the culture sees them. They choose to see the way God sees, the way God sees me, God's beloved, the way God sees the other, God's beloved. It's easy to say, but it's not so easy to do. It requires the man of reconciliation who addresses the greatest barrier to reconciliation, and that's human alienation and sin, our sin. But Jesus, like the Mott Lake Bridge, stands on one side firmly fixed in our humanity and on the other side firmly fixed in God's divinity and closes the gap for all who would cross by faith. He overcomes what disconnects us. And when people gather around this man of reconciliation, a whole new sociology breaks out, breaks out of the theology. And their neighbors, the world around them, ought to be able to see it, to read it like a letter, because they're doing the work of reconciliation, overcoming what disconnects them. And that's the work we're doing too here at UPC. That's what Sunday is about, as we learn to worship with different people in different ways. That's what kindred is about, as we cross lines of ethnicity and culture with our sister churches in Seattle. That's what formational communities will be all about. Formational community, remember, is a way of life and occurs when circles of friends live as family. On mission for their neighbors, being formed as disciples in the process. We have received grace and apostleship, Paul writes in Romans 1 5. We've received grace that sends us out. That was true for him, true for them, and true for us. I'd like for you to think and pray about that this week what it means to be sent. It's not too late to jump into Pastor Aaron's Art of Neighboring class. Actually begins this Sunday, today at 11.30 a.m. Have some food and then come back upstairs. If we want people to get into the inbox of Jesus, we've got to get ourselves into his outbox. Maybe you say, oh, not me. I'm not ready. I'm in the drafts folder. (laughs) Or maybe you say, not me. My day is past. I'm in the archive folder. (laughs) Or maybe you say, I've made such a mess of my life. I'm in the deleted folder. No, you're not. We have received grace and apostleship. Nope. You and I are in God's sent folder. We are God's beloved in Seattle, called to be saints. And don't think it doesn't matter or that the world won't notice. David Brooks is right. Culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. After all, Rome is where Caesar eventually executed Paul. But today, when you think of Rome, you don't think of the greatest military in the world. You think of a church. And today we name our dogs Caesar and our children Paul. (laughs) Or Phoebe. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the small circle that you are and the beauty of what we see in that circle. We pray that you will pour out your grace upon us and together with it apostleship, that we might dance in that same circle and give our day and our city a better view of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.